Good morning. My name is A.K. Kuravilla. I'm one of the elders here at Bayou City Fellowship. Uh, I attend uh, the Spring Branch campus uh, most of the time, so in case you haven't seen me, that's the reason. Uh, we're in the book of Mark, um, the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Mark is really about a trip of discipleship. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? So if you go from the beginning to the end of Mark and take different passages, you see different facets of what it looks like to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. So then we're called to respond, obviously. It's not enough we know, but it is equally important or perhaps more important to follow in obedience that we might increasingly look like Jesus as time goes on. So, today we're going to look at Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 50. Mark 9, 14 through 50. Let's just pray one more time. Jesus, Messiah, name above all names, blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, rescue for sinners, ransom from heaven, Jesus, Messiah, Lord of all. That's who we worship Father, that's uh, the, the, the song in our hearts. And you, the living word, speak to us this morning. We pray that our hearts may be responsive to the truth. If there is hardness, I pray that you would, you would plow and till that it might become soft. If it is parched and dry, I pray that you would send the rains uh, to make it uh, moist and fruitful a soil. And pray that when the seed of the word falls on our hearts, may it bear much fruit not because we manipulated it or did anything, but simply because your Holy Spirit allowed it to grow. And we, in response, we obeyed and followed through as you called us to do. That is our prayer, and we know that is what you want. So we pray with confidence, having received it already, that your Holy Spirit would grant us an anointing for this time as we listen to your word. Help us be responsive, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You probably heard of the man who uh, once heard his pastor say, hey, you got to look at the Bible for sense of direction. So he heard that. So Monday morning, uh, Sunday he'd gone to church, he heard that. Monday he said, all right, let me, uh, let me open the Bible and let me see at random what God is going to speak to me about. So he opened the Bible and the first thing he read was, and Judas hanged himself. <laughs> so he thought, well, this is, this is not looking good. Let me try again. So he opened another passage, and it said, go do likewise. <laughs> so he thought, well, the third time may be a charm. So he tried again, and this is what he saw. What thou doest, do quickly. <laughs> so this is what happens when you look at text out of context, right? When you look at God's Word, if we don't understand the passages, if we don't understand the, the, the background and the context, we can interpret anything we want out of it. So, as we go into Mark chapter 9, 14 through 50, let's quickly uh, go through um, the context so that we can orient ourselves to hear what God has to say about a certain facet of discipleship. So, in uh, Mark chapter 8, 31... He was uh, teaching his disciples and the group out there, saying that he was going to suffer, he was going to die. In third days, he was going to rise again. 
And uh, Peter didn't like that. He took him aside and rebuked him. And Jesus, in turn, takes Peter and rebukes him and calls him Satan, right? So it was not a very pleasant, uh, pleasant address, but that's what Jesus did. Now, note why he called him Satan. Verse 33, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but the devil's. No, is that what it says? No. It says, you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So this is interesting. So if our mind is not on God's interests, but on anything else, we can be pretty sure that we'll be called Satan, because when our mind is not on God's interests. What is God's interest? It's God's point of view. It's God's perspective, what God says, who He is, and what He expects of us. So if we, our mind is not set on God's interests and His perspective and His point of view, anything else is of the devil. And then Jesus goes on to make this radical statement in verse 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So he says, if you want to be a disciple, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. But wait, I thought discipleship was about attending the men's discipleship group, or maybe attending the women's Bible studies, or being part of a community group. Well, Jesus says there's something more than that. Not that any of that is bad, but there's something more than that. And he is calling for something really serious. He says... You've got to deny yourself. That means if I want to be a follower of Jesus, I should be willing to give up my rights, my prerogatives, my preferences, and my very life if I really want to be a follower of Jesus. That's what he's saying. And then he says, you also take up the cross. That means I should be prepared to carry this instrument with which they're going to take my life away. This is radical. I mean, this is not just... Uh, attending a men's discipleship group that makes us disciples. It is really about a willingness to follow, a willingness to give everything up, a heart posture that says nothing is important but following you and your interests. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. He says you must deny yourself, accept the rejection that comes with it, and, 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 and then follow me. So, you and I, obviously, most likely, we won't be crucified in our lifetime. I mean, I think we can say that. Not with 100% certainty, but well, most likely not. So, what is the suffering, then, uh, that we might encounter? Uh, there is all kinds of suffering, right? So, for example, if I have a dear friend who's hurting me with his words and actions constantly, and God calls me to forgive him, that means God is calling me to say, I release you from all obligation. You don't owe me anything even though you've hurt me so bad. That's true forgiveness, right? You owe me nothing. Now, that hurts. It hurts because I'm giving up, right? It hurts. God calls me to forgive. Uh, you owe me nothing. It really hurts. Which is why if you go to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says... Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Now, think about it. If you have a dead sacrifice, that's easy. One cut, all done. A living sacrifice, that means I live with a thousand cuts. A thousand times I forgive, and thousand and one, I still forgive. That's what God is calling us to do. 
a life of sacrifice, living sacrifices, continually suffering uh, for and, and, and being able to, willing to give up anything for following Jesus. Radical, isn't it? It's not, it's not that simple. So that's what uh, Jesus is calling us to do. So then the question obviously becomes, well, is this kind of suffering really worth it? And you know, Jesus has not, uh, God has not left us without answers because now he's ready to press the play button on a sneak preview coming up, which is the Mount of Transfiguration, which is what you saw last week, where Jesus went with Peter, James, and John up the mountain and he was transfigured. He was metamorphosed. It's like a creepy caterpillar become a beautiful butterfly. That's metamorphosis. A complete change of form. That's what the disciples saw Jesus. And the Bible says, uh, His garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. No Clorox could do that. That was complete transformation that these disciples saw. A sneak preview of the glory that was going to come. That suffering will be well worth it. So when Jesus comes in glory, it's going to dazzle our eyes. And all the suffering we'll know will be well worth it. So suffering first, glory later. Suffering first, glory later. That's the pattern of discipleship. That's the pattern Jesus is calling us to follow. Because that's the pattern he showed us. Suffering first, glory later. And then it's interesting in verse 7, it says, when they were up in the mountain, uh, then a cloud formed overshadowing them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Look at him. No, that's not what it said. Listen to him. So it's not just that you see him in all his glory, but listen to him. God is calling us to listen to what Jesus has to say. So that's the setting. Suffering first, glory later, both come in, and, and we move on from there. Now, Jesus, Peter, James, and John are coming down from the mountain, verse 14, that's where we begin today, and find the religious leaders are arguing with the disciples. So Jesus asked them, what are you discussing? So the, the member of the crowd explains, verse 17, and one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whatever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. They could not do it. Literally, they were not able to overcome this demonic force. Literally, that's what it says. So for some reason, these disciples could not overcome the power of this evil spirit doing all these unimaginable things with this poor boy. Now you've got to wonder, if you go back to chapter 6, you see that the disciples had power over demons and diseases. They cast out demons in six, verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 13. The disciples cast out demons and healed people. So why could they not do it this time around? Something was obviously different. And so Jesus diagnoses the problem. He says in verse 19, He answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? 
How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. So the problem, Jesus says, in this particular case was, these guys did not have faith. They were unbelieving. Now, what is that all about? What, what kind of faith is he talking about? Well, let's find out. So he asked the father about details. And the father explains in verse 22, And it had often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us. So there is this description again, verse 20, repeating what was in verse 18. So Mark really wants us to know this is serious business that we're dealing with, right? Serious business. And so the father explains the situation. And then the father goes on to say, he goes on to say, um, verse 22, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. So he's saying, well, if you can do anything, take pity on us, have compassion on us, heal this boy, get rid of the evil spirit, have mercy on us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, exclamation mark, it should really probably be a question mark. You mean to say you're asking me you can? All things are possible to him who believes. Translation. The real question is not whether I am able. The real question is whether you believe I am able. That's the real question. So he's asking the father, do you believe I'm able? Do you believe I'm able? And Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, is it just belief? No. It's the object of the belief that really makes a difference. The belief and faith has no power to heal me. But the object of the faith, God himself, has all the power in the world to do anything consistent with his character. Right? So, um, then the question becomes, all things are possible to him who believes. Can I just believe and get anything? Is it possible? Can I just believe and expect anything to happen? Well, I believe in Santa Claus. I believe, I believe, I believe. Does it mean I can get what I want on Christmas Day this year? Will it work? Or say I believe in Cupid. I believe, I believe, I believe. Cupid, draw back your bow and let your arrow go and find its way to my lover's heart. Will that work to find a spouse? Right? So, is it just about believing? No. It is about the object in which you believe. That's what makes the difference. The power remains not in my belief, or not in the faith, or not in the large faith, or the large belief that I have. Power resides in the God in whom I believe. That's important. So, um, you know, part of the problem with taking that verse out of context, all things are possible, is you could slip into a system where you say, I can name it and claim it. I want a new house, a new car, a new wardrobe, a new whatever. I can name it, I can claim it, right? Now, there's nothing wrong in praying for what you want. There's nothing wrong as long as it's consistent with what God is calling us to do. But the point is that for such prayers to work, it has to be consistent with God's ways of operation, right? I can ask for all kinds of things, but if it is not for those kinds of things flowing out of me and being a blessing for others, 
to advance God's interests, then the, those prayers, I got to be a little skeptical about them, right? Because at the end of the day, the question is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What's in it for God when I ask him to bless me? So I can ask him to bless me if I can say, Lord, if you bless me, this blessing needs to flow through so that others can be blessed. Then the prayer becomes very meaningful in the sense that it lines up with God's interests and the advancing of his glory and his kingdom. So uh, in Mark 14, 36, uh, you find this thing. All things are possible, and Jesus models it, that for us beautifully, the prayer that he has. And he was saying, Mark 14, 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for thee. The same phrase, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. Remove this cup from me, that's my desire, yet not what I will, but thou wilt. So after the sermon, the first service, uh, a person came to me and said, well, you know, if I follow that, then I can become very fatalistic. Well, God, you're going to do your thing, so it really doesn't matter if I pray. Uh, very, very good question, isn't it? But, but the point is, even when the Lord taught us, his disciples, how to pray, he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's the heart posture with which we ought to pray, where we're saying, Lord, it's your will that's paramount. Your will is most important. That's what I am really after. I do desire some things, and I keep praying. Praying uh, in faith, knowing that God's will will be done. It, that is different bring, from being very fatalistic and saying, well, God will do his stuff, I'll keep doing my stuff. Right? The boldness in prayer comes from knowing who God is. God is sovereign, he's in total control. But he's also a God of love, he loves me. And he's also a God of infinite wisdom, who knows what's best for me. So if I know who God is, then my prayers can have boldness. And there is a fuel in my prayers, knowing fully well that what I want is what God wants. So that's the kind of, uh, of faith uh, that uh, is, uh, is, is being called for. So the Father cries out, I believe, please help me with any of the doubt that I have. Yes. You know, I'm, 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 and, and, and that's what he calls uh, for. So in verse 26 and 7, 27, we see what Jesus does. does. Uh, he, uh, after crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsion, he came out, this evil spirit came out. The boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. And Jesus took him by the hand and raised him. Just kind of like what Jesus did with Jairus' daughter. Hold by the hand and lift up. From death to life, right? That's what happens when the evil spirit leaves. So, uh, that's what Jesus did. Now, in, in verse 28, we find that the disciples start questioning him. So Jesus does this miracle, and the disciples question him. What, is, what do they say? And when he had come into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not cast it out? So they see a miracle, and they're not excited about that. Their focus is, hey, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we do it? So Jesus says, and he said to them, 
This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. So they probably were doing this kind of thing, uh, exorcising, getting rid of evil spirits, and they kind of got, probably got used to it. And uh, they probably thought, hey, we can do it again. But they couldn't do it because they were not dependent on Jesus, on, on God's power. Only by a humble dependence on God for the power, a humble dependence on God for the power, can anything of significance be ever done. Unless we are dependent on God for the power, this cannot be done. And Jesus is calling us to be dependent on him in prayer. So uh, what we find here then is the father seeks compassion, exercises the little faith, and seeks help for the doubts he might have. And the disciples were not acting as true disciples because their interest was something else. Whereas his father exercises simple faith and says, if you're able, you can heal. So how does this play out in real life? Dependence in, on God in prayer for our work. What, how does that play out? Let's say you're very good at counseling. You're very effective. You counsel people and people are being blessed. Uh, you can quickly become confident in your own abilities. Your ability to phrase words and say things and pick verses. They're all good things, don't get me wrong. But you can quickly de be dependent on your abilities and lose the dependence on God. What, what Jesus would tell us is, seek God's help next time and every time that you are counseling. That's what he would say. Or let's say you're an effective teacher. You're a good Bible teacher, whether it be kids stuff or junior high, high school, adults preaching, whatever. Let's say you're a very good teacher. Uh, you can quickly become so confident in your ability that you're not dependent on God anymore in prayer. And this happens to preachers and teachers and everybody else in between, writers. You can become so confident. It's very subtle. We can become so confident in our abilities that we don't depend on God anymore. If you've been a public speaker, you know this, right? You know how to press certain buttons. You can make people laugh, cry, clap, hallelujah, praise the Lord, whatever. People can manipulate, right? Now, the question is, are you dependent on God when you exercise your gifts? Are you dependent on God for power and for something significant? Or are you dependent and confident in your abilities to control and manipulate the situation? I think that's a question we have to ask if we are doing anything anywhere, whether it be in the marketplace or in the church or anywhere in between. Even as a parent... We've got to constantly think, are we dependent on God in prayer for, this, for the wisdom, the power, and everything that is necessary to enable us to be an effective parent? Because we can't shape what our kids think. Well, we can do some things. But at the end of the day, God has to work in their lives to watch them come to trust Christ and be baptized. That's the work of God. That's a miracle of love and grace. So when we do this, the question is, are we humble? The power to accomplish anything of significance resides in God and not my abilities. So we've got to be constantly aware of this, constantly aware. Think about it, that it is God who's in control, that we've got to be dependent on Him. I don't know whether you wondered about it. I always wonder. I didn't get to choose my parents. We didn't get to choose our good looks. Uh, we didn't get to choose our childhood friends, our schools, uh, 
In reality, there's very little we choose. Now, that doesn't mean we are robots. God has given us a lot of choice. But there are a lot of things that are outside our realm of control. Right? There are lots of things that are outside our realm of control. Now, un- unless God watched over us, right, as we were growing, provided us, protected us, provided for us, protected us, guided us, enabled us, give us the health to work and do whatever we need to do, we wouldn't be here. Unless God gave us breath in our lungs and a desire to call upon Him, we wouldn't be singing the songs we sang. It's absolutely a miraculous work of God and His sovereign ways in all of our lives. So we got to be constantly aware of that so that we are dependent on Him in prayer when we want to do something of significance. So when the Father answers, I believe, help my unbelief, He's saying two things at the same time. He's saying, I believe, that's confidence in the power of God. And then He says, help my unbelief. That's a lack of confidence in his own ability, right? A true disciple. Believe in the power of God and a lack of confidence in his own ability. Unlike the 12 disciples, right? Jesus is showing us how true discipleship looks like. Be humble before God and depend on him in prayer. Be humble before God and depend on him in prayer. Now we go on to verse 30. And from there, he went out to Galilee, and then he, he predicts his death in verse 31 and resurrection for the second time. The last time it was in chapter 8, now it's in chapter 9. He predicts his death and resurrection. He says, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Now, this time, as we read in verse 32, the disciples still didn't get it. They didn't understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask. The last time Peter put his foot in his mouth and God called him, Jesus called him Satan. So having heard that, these guys probably thought, well, we better keep quiet, right? Uh, don't, don't get into it with Jesus. Well, on the way to Capernaum, the disciples then get into a discussion. They're walking along and discussing something. And Jesus says, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent and on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. So these three guys got a sneak preview, but, you know, they want to know, well, if Jesus is going to die, who's going to be the boss man in this, in this pack of 12, right? Somebody's got to be the boss. So who's going to lead now, Jesus? Would you tell us? And so the disciples really were more interested in the glory than the suffering. These are the disciples. That's their interest, right? They still haven't learned So Jesus knew what they were talking about, and so he gives them an object lesson. What does he do? Verse um, verse 36. And taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So what's it about the child? Is it the cuteness of the child? The child is absolutely helpless. The child cannot provide for him or herself. The child is kind of low on the social ladder, if you will. The child is always under the care and authority of others. A totally helpless situation. Right? They cannot determine. They don't have the power to self-determine things. That's the nature of the child. 
So the disciple is supposed to not just be the last, but go one step further. That's what Jesus says um, in verse 35, just before that. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. It's not enough to just to be the last, but also be a servant of all. And then he takes his child to, be the ser- to show us that we are called to be the servant of the last and the least. A servant to the one who is helpless. To the servant to the one who cannot take care of him or herself. A servant to the last and the least. So if you serve one of these helpless people, says Jesus, you're really welcoming me. And if you're welcoming me, then you're welcoming the Father. So this is a complete turnover from the disciples' idea of glory and power and position. And then Jesus says, uh, in my name, right? He says, do not hinder him, for there is no one who... uh, who, Sorry, in verse 37, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. The last and the least represented Jesus, and Jesus represented God. To receive Jesus is to receive God. So what is Jesus trying to do? He's trying to get rid of their normal power struggles and interest in dominant positions. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to tell you, look, you be humble and serve the last and the least because that's what a real disciple looks like. Now you find in verse 38 that John still doesn't get it. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to hinder him because he was not following us. He couldn't stand that there were others being able to cast out demons. And his problem was not that they were not following Jesus. His problem was they were not following the disciples. The guy still doesn't get it. He is interested in the hierarchy, the status, and the position. It is very deeply ingrained in these disciples, just like it is so deeply ingrained in us, right? We want that. And sometimes uh, this can happen even in a church setting, right? Even if I lead a ministry, it can be very, very subtle. Uh, Am I doing it for fame? Am I doing it for prominence? Am I doing it so that my ego can be stroked? Am I doing it because I want more influence? What is the motive and what is driving me to, to do these things, right? It's interesting if you go to the familiar passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, talking about love, uh, the Apostle Paul says, you know, whether you have prophecy or tongues or faith, you've got all these wonderful gifts. It means nothing if there is no love. And what does that mean? Love is seeking the well-being of another. So I can have all the gifts in the world, but if that is not used for the well-being of others, it's just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. That's what the Bible says, right? It means nothing and it's worth nothing. So what, what he is calling us to do is to serve with the motives. So when we use our gifts purely for the well-being of others in the body of Christ, our gifts become effective. So we've got to ask ourselves, what motivates us to help with ministries, for example, in the church? What motivates you to drive the golf cart in the parking lot? The simple questions, right? 
These are things that we have to constantly ask if we want to be faithful as disciples following Jesus the way he wants us to do. So John points out there are people casting out demons. And Jesus says, if there are people performing miracles in my name, then I'm good with it. He's not saying, well, let's be all inclusive and get everybody into this big tent. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, if they are using my name, they're doing it in my name, well, they're not against me. Let's not worry about it. Let's not worry about the fact that they may be different from us, but uh, let's, let's understand that they are doing it in my name. So he says, of course, that if you ever, in verse 41, for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly, I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. If we serve others who are followers of Jesus, Jesus is saying, we don't lose a reward. If we suffer in our service for others, we will not lose a reward. There is a reward waiting us, waiting for us. And if we really want to serve, it's going to take a very heavy dose of humility, right? It's going to take a very heavy dose of humility for us to serve because a natural tendency is we want, we want to be served. But if we have to serve, it's going to take a very heavy dose of humility. But you won't go without a reward. So, outserve others. Seek how we can serve people for their well-being. And, and, and there is a reward waiting for us. So we learned, be humble. Depend on God in prayer for anything significant. And now we learn, be humble before people. Serve the last and the least. And then he goes on to verses 42 through 50. Jesus warns them about the consequences of not being careful as they serve the last and the least. Uh, you know, there's a talk about the hand, the foot, and the eye. If it's standing in the way, get rid of them. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? The hand, the foot, and the eye, those are the agents with which we can discriminate, or those are the agents with which we can sin. The hand commits the sin. The foot gets you to the location of the sin. The eye opens up the desire for want to sin, Right? Everything that stands in the way that causes the last and the least to stumble, we got to be very careful because the consequences are serious, says Jesus. So while we, while we serve, we need to watch out uh, for causing any of those people we serve to sin. Because he says, hey, if that's what's happening, you might as well drown yourself because it's really worth nothing what you're doing. And then he goes on to verse 49. He says, everyone will be salted with fire. Uh, for everyone will be salted with fire. Now, what has that got to do with humility? Well, in Ezekiel, if you go, you'll find that the burnt offerings that were acceptable and pleasing to God were salted. And salt has uh, references to qualities of purity and holiness in the Old Testament. It's linked to the covenant of God if you go back and see those things. So rather than being thrown into a lake of fire in hell, which is, which, which is what he's talking about in verse 48, you and I want to be a salted sacrifice, a sacrifice that's pleasing to God, just as we talked about in Romans 12, living sacrifices, exercising humility before God, depending on Him in prayer, before people, serving the last and the least. That's what He's calling us to do. Instead of struggling for priority, in verse 50, 
The disciples are called to be at peace with one another. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another, right? Don't seek the, 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 don't struggle for the priority. Be humble, depend on God in prayer. Be humble, serve the last and the least. That's the message that Jesus is driving home here for us as we seek to be good followers of Jesus. So that brings us to the question. Are we known for humility? Will they say, A.K., man, that he is a paragon of humility? Will he say that, right? We have to ask ourselves this question. Are we known for humility? Not a facade. You can put on a sense of false sense of humility. People may not see through that. Some will. But you can get away with it, right? So are we genuinely humble? Is that, is that a trait that we are known for? Are we known for humility before God where we are totally dependent on him? In prayer. Is that the characteristic of my life as a follower? Am I known for humility with people where I'm serving the last and the least? Not to advance my own interests, but to advance Jesus' interests. So what he's calling us to do, he's calling us to cultivate humility. Humility before God. Be humble, be dependent on him in prayer. Humility before people. Be humble, serve the last and the least. That's what he's calling us to do. And that's the follower that Jesus is really after. Father God, we thank you for you have not left us as orphans. You are our Father, and you have given us your word. You've given us your perspective. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness. So it's with grateful hearts that we receive it. Help us, Lord, to live obedient lives that we are humble before you, that we are totally dependent on you in prayer for anything significant, and that we might be humble before people as we serve our brothers and sisters and serve the last and the least. To that and help us, we pray in Jesus' name.